Amen. You may be seated, and please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. First Kings chapter 17, we've been preaching through Kings in the evenings, Sunday evenings on the second and fourth Sundays of every month, and we have made it thus far. And so we pick up here this morning in chapter 17 with the relief of a new character. We get to meet Elijah, the prophet Elijah for the first time. First Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. After a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise. Go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in the jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you've said, but, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word that the Lord spoke by Elijah. And after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times 
and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you uh, so love us and care for us that you have fed us with your word. And so we would ask that you would continue to do that this morning. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we have read the word and you spoke, that as the word is preached, that you would also speak and that you might again show us the evil and the lifelessness of our sin and show us the good and the riches and all the benefits that are in Christ. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In 2002, which I'll remind you was 20 years ago, a band named Counting Crows released a song entitled Big Yellow Taxi. Some of you may, may remember the song, uh, but certainly you'll remember the chorus. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone? They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. I've never known what that next line, that last line says, but I don't know what I've sang before, but it wasn't that. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got until it's gone? They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. It goes on to talk about how they, they paved a parking lot where paradise used to be, and they put in a pink hotel and a boutique and a swinging hot spot. Yet the venture obviously later seemed to be missed, at least by some, because of the refrain, the chorus, and the song, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Now, though not a very good song, and you're welcome for putting those lyrics in your head for the rest of the day, <laughs> though not a very good song, the chorus does capture what seems to kind of be a recurring event in our lives. That with time, we realize that some of the things that we used to have, some of, the, uh, some of the ways that things used to be were at the time undervalued and underappreciated. But time has a way of showing us what the true value really was and what appreciation there should have been in those days gone by. You don't know what you've got until it's gone. Some examples of that for, for those of us in the room this morning might be, well, maybe it was a, maybe you've come to realize that, you know, in the case of a former job, right? A, a job that you didn't like very much, and so you took a promotion, and so it was more money, it was better hours, and so on and so forth, but six months in, you realize, oh boy, this isn't what I thought it was. I really do miss that thing that I used to have. Or maybe for some of us that are growing older, maybe it's the simplicity of former years. And maybe we, we look back on our teenage years that, 
that at the time probably seemed complex, but all that is kind of washed away now. And we look back on our teenage years and we think about the freedom and the, the lack of responsibility that we had and, 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 and we, we miss those days that at the time seemed so miserable. But for Israel, the thing that they didn't know they had till it was gone was worship of her former God, the loveliness of her former God. You see, chapter 17 obviously falls in the context of the chapters that have gone forward and are very important for learning how to interpret chapter 17. It started with Solomon, the false worship that was brought into Israel, worshiping other gods and so on and so forth. And as Solomon was Proceeded by Jeroboam, he seemed he continued to do the same things. He built altars for foreign gods, namely Baal, in the northern kingdom. And then when we come to chapters 15 and 16, we realize that the kings that followed Jeroboam, Nadab and Baasha and Elah and Zimri and Omri and Ahab, all of these kings continued to lead Israel into the worship of her false god, Baal, and away from the worship of the one true God. All the people, all those kings let the people of the northern kingdom, led them away from Yahweh into false worship, into false worship of Baal. Until we come to the end of chapter 16 where there's sort of a climax of this false worship. In verse 31, the author says, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, King Ahab, the son of Nebat, he took his wife, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshiped him. So here we have a king of Israel taking his wife from the capital country of false worship of Baalism. Her father, his name meant Baal be with him. And as he brings her home, he subsequently continues to worship Baal in the northern kingdom in Israel. In chapter 16, verse 32, it continues, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built, for, which he built in Samaria. So now they have this false temple and this false altar right in the heartland of the people of God. And it continues into verse 33, and Ahab made an Asherah And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. From marrying a woman from the capital of false worship and bringing that worship back home and building building a false temple and a false altar and a false idol, here we have the climax of false worship right here in the heartland of Israel. But before we go to throwing too many punches at the people of Israel, we, we have to realize that, that we also are sort of prone to a, to a different kind, maybe a similar type, though, of false worship, and it's called idolatry. What is idolatry? What, what does it really look like? Well, to, to, to kind of give some examples is helpful to illustrate what I'm talking about. Uh, perhaps it's material things, the idea that, you know, the next thing that I buy will give me true happiness. Now, that idea is, is rampant out in the culture and obviously also in the church. Or perhaps my idol is, is escape from my problems, 
right? If I could just get out of my problems for just a little bit of time, then I would, then I would be happy. I would be, I would be fulfilled. I wouldn't have to deal with everything around me. And so we run to alcohol and to other things to escape from the world around us. Or maybe it's the idea that, you know, if I just conform to social media, then I will, number one, be happy because people will love me. Or maybe it's, it's person worship. Maybe it's the spouse that's worshiped, or maybe it's the children that are worshiped, or maybe it's some other person in our lives that are worshiped, that can seem to consume all of our time and all of our energy and all of our headspace. Idolatry can be defined as when the thing that we love most is not God and therefore controls our lives instead of God. Idolatry is when the thing that we love most is not God, and that thing therefore controls all of our lives instead of God. Now, we may be in the room, super Christians here this morning, thinking that, oh, I don't really struggle with idolatry. That's not how the Bible explains it. The Bible has two categories, those who are inactively struggling with idolatry and those who will be tempted to it in the, in the near future probably. And so before we kind of ride ourselves out of 1 Kings chapter 17, we, re- we need to realize that this is, this is real. Now, this problem is real. The, the temptation to worship and serve and love something or someone other than God actually happens. Every day. But this passage teaches us two things particularly. One thing that's, that's implicit and the other thing that, that's explicit. Implicitly, it teaches us that our idols in and of themselves are really and truly just ugly. But it teaches explicitly that God far surpasses them in loveliness, right? These two things, that our idols are really and truly ugly, but, but God far surpasses them in loveliness, right? God's loveliness far surpasses that of our idols, well, how does it prove this to us? Well, first, it proves that the idols are all take and no give. Well, how does it prove this? Well, 1 Kings chapter 17 opens up in verse 1 with a curse, right? Elijah, who we just met for the first time, is sent to Ahab, the king of Israel, to pronounce a curse. And he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And now, in the 21st century, this sort of curse may not sting quite as much as it did about uh, 3,000 years ago. Because today we have the advent of wells and engines that can pump water out of the ground and water our crops overhead. We can, we can make fake rain in a sense. Oh, it's still provided by God. And so the, the immediate effects of a drought may not be 
quite as, uh, quite as, as, as tender to the skin as, as, as it was 3,000 years ago. But, but in this day and time, a curse like this would break the people to whom it's directed. The result of this curse would be that, that everything will be gone. All the food is going to be gone because there's no water to make it grow. All the money is going to be gone because there's no food to sell. There will be no trade. Everything will be taken away. People are literally going to starve, as we just read about in chapter 17, as we see the woman. She's, she's out of food and she's, well, water runs low. But this isn't the way that it was supposed to be. You see, this isn't the lie that we had been sold earlier. You see, if you go and you worship Baal, right, and you give him your offerings and you give him your sacrifices, you dot all your I's and you cross all your T's, oh, then he would send the water, then he would send the rain. You know, except for that one time a year when he had to go die. That would, of course, create the dry season. But he would be revived and it would come back to rain again, right? So Baal worship was supposed to do the exact, or supposed to do the opposite of what God has just cursed. Baal was supposed to provide water, which would provide food, which would provide money for trade. Water would provide everything. Baal would provide everything for the people of Israel. But the reality is, is that Baal worship gave nothing but a curse. And Baal worship provided nothing but resource bankruptcy. You see, Baal has taken everything from Israel by way of the curse. In the same way, idols are all take and no give. Sort of like the IRS. All take, no give. But also just like the lusts of our hearts. All take and no give. See, our own, our own idols do the exact same thing that, that Baal has done to the people of Israel, taking everything away from them. Our idols do the same thing. And so it's a wonderful opportunity to ask the question, uh, what is taking everything away from me? What, what am I giving my everything to and what's taking it all away and not giving back? What is it in my life that's taking all of my love but giving me nothing in return? What is it in my life that's taking all of my affections and all of my care but giving nothing back? And this is the most important one. Which, what, what thing in my life is taking all of my obedience and why is it not God? What's robbing my obedience? What's robbing my attention? What's robbing everything from me? And why is it not God? Because God gives. He's not like the idols of our heart. He, he gives back. He gives first. But idols are not like that. They're all take and no give. They make big promises that they can't actually deliver on. And that's the second thing we notice about idols is they, that they promise everything that only God can provide. Idols promise everything that only God can provide. When we read 
through chapter 17 and we cross out of verse 1 and cross into verse 2, we are stepping into a world that is cursed with no rain and no dew, which is a big problem. And the effects of this curse, not even Elijah is immune from in a number of different ways. You see, first things first, right? The man who goes and pronounces this sort of curse to this king of Israel automatically has a bounty on his back, right? He's got, he's got crosshairs on his back. Someone is coming for his life. And so what's the first thing that God tells him after he pronounces this curse to King Ahab? Verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. You see, God, God commands his servant, God tells his servant, go here and you will be protected. Go here and hide yourself, hide yourself here and you'll find protection. So God provides protection. The only problem is, is that where God sent him for protection, there is no food, right? There's nothing to eat. But God provides for that as well. God says in verse four that you go here, you you hide here, but you shall drink from the brook Cherith and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Where God has sent him for protection, God promises to provide for him food and drink. And that's exactly what he does. Verse five, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord and he went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. See, the amazing thing is, is in the middle of the desert where there's not supposed to be any food whatsoever, God feeds Elijah with twice the frequency that he fed the people of Israel on the Exodus. Manna fell once a day. Here, here Elijah is getting fed twice a day with both meat and bread. And he's got all he can drink from the brook Cherith. God provided him protection. God provided him with food and with water in the desert. The only problem is, is the curse is actually working. In verse six, we see that, or verse, yes, verse, uh, verse six, or seven, I'm sorry. We find out that the curse is actually working and after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So here's another problem. We needed protection, well, God provided that one. We needed food and water, well, God provided that one. Well, we're out of water. The curse is actually working. God says, don't worry. Go to Zarephath which belongs to Zion, or Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Now there are just a couple problems with this statement, with this command. The first one is with where God has commanded Elijah to go. If you'll remember uh, that the wife of Ahaz Uh, who also worships Baal, came from this country, right? She came from Sidon, right? This Sidon is the capital of false worship. This Sidon, this place where where Elijah's commanded to go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, is the capital of Baalism. It's the capital of false worship. But yet God tells Elijah to go there to reside And not only that, but he also tells him, I'm going to feed you by the hand of a widow. 
right? A widow is the oxymoron of plenty. Right? Widows don't have anything. In conditions like this, widows starve to death, which is obviously where they are when Elijah finds her. Elijah listens to the Lord in obedience, even though the odds don't seem great from the outside. And Elijah comes to the gate of the city and he finds the woman at the gate. And what is she doing? She's searching for sticks. And we we learn that she's searching for sticks because she's about to go home and cook her last meal for herself and her son before they die. They have no more food left. They have no more oil left. They have nothing to eat. They're cooking their last meal before they die. This is the last meal they will eat before they uh, starve to death. And so Elijah finds her. He asks her, will will you please bring me some water and a jug and a cup? She's happy to do that. And then Elijah asks her, will you also bring me some bread in your hand? And this is where we sort of learn all of the details behind this woman's story, right? That she is, uh, there there is no, there's only one handful of flour left, uh, left at her house and there's only a little bit of oil in a jug and she is about to go fix this last meal for herself and her son. Still yet, Elijah says, don't worry, don't fear. Go and do as you've said, but, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the flour, uh, the flour or the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jar, a jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Obeying this promise is a life or death situation for this woman. You can feel the drama and the mothers in the room can especially feel the drama or, or the tension in the text, right? Is she going to listen to Elijah and give her last meal to him or is she gonna uh, take care of her son and go home and at least fix this one piece of bread for him and hope that something else happens between now and the time they die? And she's forced to choose between a last meal for herself and her son or to believe Elijah that the Lord will provide And the Lord provides. First, he provides the faith for the woman to believe. And then he provides the flour and the oil for her and Elijah and her son to eat. And we're told in verse 16 that the jar of flour was not spent and neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. It's here we realize with the backdrop of Solomon and Jeroboam and all the other kings of Israel and the Baal worship that they have forsaken God for. It's here that we worship that everything that they left God for in Baal has been found in God himself. That everything that they walked away from God for, he's providing actively for Elijah, right? He's providing protection. He's providing food. He's providing faith for the woman. He's providing comfort and and, uh, over the situation, comfort in a situation where there is no comfort to be found. 
That God is providing everything for Elijah and this woman and her son while the rest of Israel has gone to seek it from Baal. It proves the point that, that, that idols are deceptive. That they promise everything that only God can provide. Right? Materialism promises happiness, right? If I can just get another thing, another item, if I can just get my hands on it and own it, then I'll be happy. Right? If I can just escape from my problems by drowning myself in this bottle, then I'll be happy, I'll be fine. I even just follow the social media trends and I'll be liked by everyone. I'll be loved. I'll be appreciated. Life will be so much better. If I just had, if I just had that other thing, then I would truly be fulfilled. I would truly have life. I would truly have everything that I've ever wanted. But the scriptures teach, and it's teaching us here, to not be fooled. That these things have never, ever, since the beginning of time, been found in anyone or anything other than Christ himself. None of these things have been found anywhere else other than in Christ himself. Happiness is only found in knowing and believing that my sins are forgiven in Christ. Escape from my problems is only found by resting in the loving sovereignty of Christ himself who is Lord of heaven and earth and with and and, and who feeds the birds of the air and, and also feeds me because he loves me. Right, if we want attention that the social media promises only found by knowing that, that Christ himself numbers the hairs on my head. He gives me all the attention that I could ever want. He's given me his spirit to commune with me, to comfort me. If closeness and, and intimacy is the thing that I'm searching for, then, then it's only found from God himself in or from the hand of God himself. We want life. We want the right thing. We just don't want it from the wrong place. We want life. Our idols promise it. But we have to know that, that they can't deliver on their promises. Life can only be found in Christ. And it's true that that whatever life we may think we have now apart from Christ is only death in a really, really good costume because life can only be found in Christ. Hopefully the Spirit is working through His Word and, and hopefully if if we have yoked ourselves to one of these idols, we've realized that, that we are in a world of trouble. In fact, we're in, we're in a very hopeless situation. If we look at Israel right now in the context of chapters 12 through 17, Israel is in an absolutely hopeless situation. But what we also learn from this passage is that God delights to and is fully able to work in hopeless 
situations. And that's what we find when we move on to verse 17. That the, the, the son of this woman, this widow, has become ill and ill to the point that he, uh, illness was so severe to the point that there was no breath left in him. In so many words, he's dead. And so obviously the, the widow is upset because she has heard this former promise from the Lord that he would provide food, that he would provide water until the day that he, that he sent rain upon the earth. And so she insinuated or she, she, she uh, figured that, well, he's, must, he's gonna sustain my life for some time. He's gonna sustain the life of my son for some time. And what does she find? Well, she finds a prophet at her house whom she blames has brought her sin to the fore which has in turn cost her son his life. Her theology is not terribly bad. Sin requires death. And so we find ourselves in a a quite hopeless situation. And so she's frustrated and she brings that frustration to Elijah and Elijah doesn't diffuse it. What he does is he takes her frustration and he brings it to God, which is, by the way, where our frustration should wind up is before the throne of God. He takes her frustration to God himself and he prays and he acts and he prays some more. And in verse 22, God listens. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. God works. Here particularly he works in this hopeless situation. The boy is dead and he raises him to life. God delights, he's able as well to show his power and to work in hopeless situations, whether it be dead people or whether it be a whole nation that's devoted itself to the false worship of Baal. Have no kings to deliver her, have no one else to deliver her. She's hopeless. God is not afraid to work in such a situation. And neither is God afraid to work in any situation you may find yourself in when you find yourself that you've yoked your heart to the wrong thing. You've yoked your heart to some idol. God delights to work in those hopeless situations. If you realize that, that, that you can't, you can't, you yourself can't unyoke from this idol. God delights to work. And so I would encourage you this morning that if, if, if that's where you find yourself or if, or if you ever find yourself in the situation where you have yoked your heart to something other than God himself and you realize that you can't break that yoke to do what Elijah has done, give yourself to prayer. Because we have to realize that, that, that the strength to shed our sin does not come from ourselves, but it comes from heaven. 
And so to heaven, our prayers must go, Lord, would you please deliver me from this idol? Would you, would you pray to the Lord to ask him, would you, would you deliver me? Would you plead with him? Would you beg with him? Would you pray with boldness? God, deliver me from this thing. And not just one a day, but, but continually, as the apostle says. Hopefully the Spirit of God has illuminated our hearts to the danger of idols, perhaps one that we've yoked ourselves to now or perhaps effectively warning us of what may come in the future. If so, he's started a process that he, delighted, that he longs to finish. But the process starts with realizing that the word of the Lord is true. And the word of the Lord is true specifically to what it says in regards to uh, what it says about idols, what it says about idols in the fact that they are, they are ugly, that they're worthless, that they're empty, that they can't provide what they promise. But hopefully the Spirit's impressed upon our hearts this morning what the word of the Lord says about God himself. That he cares for those that belong to him. That in him, there is joy to be found in a world that's so broken and so sinful and so miserable. That in him, there is comfort to be found in a world full of unpredictability. That in him belongs sovereignty. He orders the affairs of all the earth. But primarily, I hope what's come to what we've realized about the Lord, that we realize that it's true with respect to his love. Because God is interested in delivering his people even from the love of other gods. That's how committed God is to his bride, is he's committed enough to woo her away from her other lovers. And so would you, would you behold the beauty of Christ and truly behold the emptiness of your sin and your idols? Turn to Christ and cling to him and never let go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your faithfulness and we thank you, Father, that you, in your kindness, do see our sin and do not immediately put us off, but you long to deliver us to glory with yourself. And so, Father, we pray for strength, for strength to fight, but we also pray, O oh Lord, that you would continue to impress upon our hearts the otherness that is yours, the holiness that is yours, the unconditional love that is yours for your children. And might these things loose us from the bonds of idolatry. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.